Amen. Thank you, Ella. Uh, Ella, has anyone ever told you you have an accent? Well, it's great to be with you tonight. Uh, some of you may know I'll be uh, heading off to America next week, and so this is uh, my last weekend with you for a couple of weeks, and, and one of the things I want to do is always just savor the time of worship, and so thanks again for those who lead us, for those who serve, and we do serve and worship a great God, and we are in awe of Him, and He loves this church, and I think we just need to be aware of that and sense that right now, and I do appreciate, again, even Stuart's announcement and having been a part of these meetings and appreciate you not coming to me, but also just being a part of that prayer process and seeing the unity of the elders and the search committee, we are going to pray for great things for this church, and we're going to do it together. So as I've said before, your job is to pray and to be patient, but pray, and let's do that. I'm going to give you a moment to uh, pray with me, and I do appreciate your continued prayers for my family. We'll have the memorial service for my mother in America in Dallas, uh, first week of September. And so I'll be there for that, and I'm uh, grateful to be able to be there, to be able to speak, and to be able to recognize that we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And that's the reality of the Christian faith. We believe it, we say it, and we live it out. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to give you a moment to pray silently. Bring whatever need you have before the Lord. He is here, he is listening, and he cares. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. Let us exalt the Lord forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Father, we just want to worship you and praise you for who you are. We have sung of your greatness, and we believe that in our heart, that your greatness is seen in your love for us, in the mercy that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the grace that we have received freely, and the salvation from sins that we have. Lord, we thank you that we can reflect upon the cross of Jesus Christ and recognize that Jesus is with us and Jesus loves us and he is coming again for us. Father, we also want to intercede on behalf of our world. We pray once again for the situation in Ukraine. We ask once again for peace and we keep bringing that petition before you. Father, I also want to pray for this church. We pray for the process as there is that search going on for a new senior pastor. And Lord, as we've acknowledged already, you know that person. You know that man. We just want to discern your good and perfect will. And when you give us that good and perfect will, we will embrace it joyfully and celebrate and so, Father, I do pray that you would continue to bless Subi Church and the ministries of this church, the ones we've heard about today, the ones that are going on right now, including Subi Kids, the ones that we have throughout the week, and, Father, also those ministries that we support around the world. We thank you for our missionaries, both local and abroad. We lift them up to you. And Father, we thank you for your word, and we praise you that you want to speak to us right now. 
And I pray that you would help us to listen. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to come back to uh, Elisha. And Elisha, we're looking at this greater theme of taking God seriously. And we've got a, a beautiful story that illustrates a concept of whether we're going to take God seriously or not. So I want you to think about taking greed seriously and taking grace seriously, both of those. We're going to think about greed and grace. They're, they're kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum, but, but that's what we're going to be thinking about. But it all deals with how we view our God. And do we take these things seriously? So let me begin with this story, the story of a family heirloom that was a, a, a cloisonne vase from, uh, from China. And the family had it in the family for years, and I'm not sure exactly what it was worth, 100000 who knows. But one day, uh, one of their, their children, a little boy in the family, got his hand stuck in it. So obviously the, the neck of it narrows down. He has his hand in that narrow spot, and he cannot get it out. And they're doing everything to try to get his hand out. And they're putting you know, the butter, soap, whatever you can, whatever you can do to get this hand out, but it just won't come out. And the more they try, the more he starts yelling and screaming and crying. He's a little boy. Finally, they, the parents look at each other and say, well, the, the only thing we can do is just break the vase. We... We're just going to have to break it. There's nothing else. He's not going to grow out of this thing. He's got it. We've got to break it. And so they break it open. And what they see is that the little boy had seen a small coin, a penny, if you're familiar with that, when they used to make those, a penny. And he had it in his hand. It was in his fist. And the hand wouldn't come out because he held it in a fist because he was holding on to something extremely valuable, namely, a penny. we got to live with that. But he's a child. He doesn't know any better. And yet, now we need to bring it to ourselves, because one of the things that we have to think about in the Western world is sometimes we value material things, and we cling to those material things. But do they have lasting value? Do they have great value? Why are we holding on and clinging to those things so tightly that we know we're not going to take them with us? We know they have limited value. And the question is this, do we love God? Do we value the kingdom of God? Do we value that relationship with Jesus Christ more than anything else in the world? To me, this is especially relevant, not just to the 21st century church, but to the Western church. The Western church. You know, one of the things, I'm just going to be blunt, sometimes we give one another a pass on materialism because it seems like, well, no one really seems to care. But the fact is, you can't love money and love God. You're going to have one or the other be your master. Jesus tells us that. What I want you to do is think about greed, and I want you to take it seriously. What does it mean? And then I want you to think about grace, and then take that seriously. And we're going to see that in this beautiful story about Elisha, but primarily now centering in once again on the man named Naaman, who has been healed of leprosy, and Elisha's servant, who is Gehazi. So turn with me to... 2 Kings chapter 5, or look on the screen behind me. 
2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. And what you need to know is this, the story we've already seen. Naaman comes, and he has leprosy. And remember, Elisha tells him, well, you just need to go dip in the Jordan. Actually, a servant of Elijah, Elisha says, just go and, and dip in the Jordan for seven times. And he does what Elisha tells him to do. He dips himself seven times, comes up the seventh time. His skin is like a, a, a child's, a schoolboy's. He's been washed clean of the leprosy. He brought with him a whole lot of silver and gold and ten garments, which are not just nice clothes. I mean, they are clothes of kings, of royalties. And he offers them to Elisha. And Elisha says, no. God doesn't want your money. It's not important. This is grace. You are healed. Just receive it as an act of God's grace. And remember what Naaman wants to bring back? He brings back all of his goods, but he's also going to bring back some dirt from Israel because he says, I want to remember there's only one true and living God, the God of the Israelites. And he will worship the God of Israel for the rest of his life. Now let's pick up that story because Elisha is going to tell him to go in peace. Verse 19, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 19, Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master's too easy on Naaman, the Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say two men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, says Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver and two, two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants. In other words, we got a lot of silver there. And they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away, and they left. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, let's talk about greed. Here's the first point. Greed brings more than what we bargained for, so cultivate a life of contentment. It's pretty clear what Scripture tells us to do. So the story of Naaman, who is a great man, a great general, a rich man, is healed. He travels some distance away from Elisha. But here's the servant of Elisha, and he can't stand this. Now, remember, there are 340 kilograms of silver that Naaman is carrying, 69 kilograms of gold, 10 sets of clothing, and he sees this riding off into the sunset. It's been offered to them. You know, you can have this free. Just take it. We want to give this to you. Naaman wants that, you to have that. And Elisha says, no, 
No, as the Lord lives, I'm not taking anything from you. You just go ahead and go on your way. So here's Gehazi thinking, we've been too easy on this Aramean. It's like someone who came and ate lunch at your table and he didn't pay. I mean, he just needs to pay up. He just, you know, why not take something from him? Come on. He's willing. This is one interesting thing. He goes and he chases after Naaman. He catches up and then he invents a lie. Well, two from the company of the prophets, two poor Bible college students, you know how that is. We just like to help them and, and would be willing to take just one talent of silver and two, two sets of garments, clothing. Well, of course, Naaman's just like, well, why don't you take two? Take, you know, got two? Take two, two talents of uh, silver. So that's what they do. He takes them and then he hides them away. Now, what you have is the perfect crime, right? This is not a robbery. This is Naaman saying, I want you to have this. I'm more than happy for you to have this. And this is Gehazi not hurting anybody. No one gets hurt. No one gets injured. There's no affair, no adultery, no murder, whatever. None of that here. It's just Gehazi in greed saying, God hasn't given me enough. I want more. I can covet what isn't mine because it belongs to Naaman. And he does. And now what does he have? He's got a great retirement plan. I mean, superannuation is taken care of. So here's how I think this is going to play out. He's not going to go wearing those clothes around Elisha, right? He's going to hide him away. When Elisha dies... And he's going to die. When Elisha dies, now I've got all this silver and these two sets of clothing that can actually be sold for a lot of money. I have got my retirement all planned, all planned. It's there. It's great. It's amazing. And it didn't hurt anybody. And, and, and there was no robbery. There was really just a little bit of greed, a small white lie, and a generous donor who gave it to me. When Elisha sees him, he asks this question. Was not my spirit with you? If, uh, if Elisha's spirit is there with Gehazi, how much more the spirit of God? Do you really take God seriously, Gehazi? I mean, haven't you seen the power of God even in healing Naaman? Don't you believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God? And yet, what takes over in his life is just this sin of coveting and greed. That's all it is. And it's going to lead, of course, to a little white lie. Let me point out, I want you to think about greed, and, and greed is like spiritual leprosy. You know, you can put fine clothes on a decaying body, but it's still a decaying body. It's having things, but not being able to enjoy them because you still want more, and you want more, and you want more, and you want what other people have, and that's called coveting. So this multiplication of sins. So greed doesn't stop with one sin. That's the love of money. He covets what belongs to another, 
And, and what's so bad about that? Isn't that a victimless crime? I want you to think about that for a moment. Why is coveting in the Ten Commandments? There's only ten. There's only ten, but coveting is one of them. By the way, I can covet something of yours, and you may never, never know it. You may never know it. No one would know it. I'm coveting. You don't know it. What's the harm? What is the problem with that? What type of sin would that? Why would God put that down as one of the ten? Because when you covet, it is an act against a holy God where you're saying to God, what you gave that person belongs to me. You are not a good and loving God. I will not love you with all my heart. I actually want what that person owns, so I'm going to covet something that you've given to them. You realize there's a verse in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus Christ owns it all. You covet, you are sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saying to the Lord Jesus, what belongs to you should be mine. Mine. And it's a very clear sin against our God. It's not just something we can, well, I can covet all I want and get away with it all the time. No, you don't. It is a sin against a holy God. I want you to think about it. When it comes to coveting, I want you to take this seriously. When you cannot see the victim, the victim's you. That coveting, that greed is going to eat your lunch. It'll keep you from enjoying anything that you have and everything that you have. You can't enjoy because you covet. You're greedy. And of course, that, the third thing is we've got this white lie, two prophets have come. Uh, one of the things that in the Western world, is we've got to take this seriously, this, this thought that somehow money will bring me happiness and contentment. And we keep testing that theory again and again and again, and it never seems to work. It's that big lie. There's a book that came out a number of years ago. It's actually 1991, so it's, it's a few years ago. But it was, it was a book entitled with this title, The Day America Told the Truth. So what they have, the authors are basically going through and addressing questions to society and, and telling them, no one's going to know who you are. No one's ever going to know who you are. But we want you to tell us the God-honest truth. Just give us that answer. So here's the question. What are you willing to do for $10 million? Now, that's, that's more like $1.4 million, in, or $10.4 million, um, or $14.44, whatever million in Australia. It's a lot of money. Okay, but $10 million American. Um, so here's uh, one of the answers. So there's a number of things that they would be willing to do, but 25% uh, said this. They would abandon their entire family for $10 million. In other words, you give me $10 million, I'll disown my entire family. But what I have is $10 million. I can make some more, more friends and so forth, but I'll have my $10 million, and that's the thinking. One in four would say, you give me $10 million, I'll disown my whole family. Some would probably take less than that. Okay, next one. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. In other words, they know, you know, that your testimony would bring justice to a murderer, or 
you can receive $10 million, $10 million, and no one would know about it other than you, and the murder would go free, and you get $10 million, 10%, one out of 10 would say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that for $10 million, sure. The next one. This is uh, kind of mind-boggling to me. 7% seven would say this. I would kill a stranger for $10 million. And so, you know, I, I guess it's, thinking, no, I don't want to kill anybody I know, but in an essence, be willing to be a hired hitman one time, just one time, I would be willing to kill somebody if you gave me $10 million. And seven out of 100 said, yeah, I'll do that. I'd be willing to do that for $10 million. Sure, that doesn't make me a murderer, does it? Just because I lost and long for money and kill somebody I don't even know, would that really make me a murderer? The day America told the truth. There's a, a story. I want to go to Russia now by uh, Leo Tolstoy. He told a story one time about a very successful uh, peasant farmer. But he wasn't satisfied with all that he had. He wanted more. And so the story goes like this. One day he received an offer, and this was the offer, for a thousand rubles. I will let you, this peasant farmer, walk as long, as far as you can in the, the, uh, the circle that you make, and you walk around it, that's all your property. You get one day to do it. The one catch is this. You have to be back before the sun sets. So that's the one catch. And he's willing to do it. For a th he gives a thousand rubles, and he's thinking, I can walk this big swath of land, and everywhere I walk, all inside of that circle is mine as long as I get to the finish line before sunset. So the next day, he gets up and he's walking and going at a very fast pace. The heat of the day, he doesn't stop. He just keeps going and going because he wants to get as much property as he possibly can. The afternoon sun beats down on him, but that's okay. He's getting prop property every step he takes. He sees the sun begin to set, and he begins to start running, and it goes down, and he runs faster and faster. His heart is pounding. His breath is very short, but he sees the finish line, and just before the sun sets, he falls over the finish line. He collapses. He's made it. A couple of minutes later, he dies. Here's the title of the story Tolstoy wrote. Oh, let me just point out, oh, there's one more part of the story. After he dies, a servant takes his body. He buries him in a, a grave six feet long, three feet wide. That's what he does. The title of the story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Apparently, six by three is good enough. But you see what's going on here. Tolstoy is catching on to something. Greed kills us. It eats our lunch. And we think, oh, that's okay. It's acceptable. We're, we're Western Christians. That's all right. No, it's not. That is a sin against God. It is spiritual leprosy, and it just doesn't look good on anybody. 
Let me just encourage you, as we cultivate a taste, what does it mean to love and worship God? Cultivate this taste for contentment. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And again, Paul writes this great passage. He says this, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And he goes on, and he says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. He's, everybody knows that. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Is that true? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Can you believe that? Somebody who has his treasure named Jesus, and we've said, oh, I'd rather have the money than Jesus. The day America told the truth, yeah, we'd be willing to give our family for, for $10 million, but what will you give up for Jesus? That's the question. And some, probably not for $10 million, say, yeah, if I can have the money, I'd rather have that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What does it look like? Well, let me just encourage you, don't look at other people. Look at yourself, look in the mirror, and ask these questions. Is Jesus my treasure? Do I truly value the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to make a sacrifice for the Lord? I'm not just talking about material things. I'm just saying, would you be willing to make a sacrifice for the Lord? Is serving the Lord a burden to you? Is worshiping the Lord a burden to you? Is giving to the Lord a burden to you? Or is it a joy? Let me encourage you with this thought. Value giving over getting. That's a tough one, but someone put, put it this way. It's better to give than to receive. Who said that? Who said it? Jesus said it. He didn't say it in the gospel. We have it quoted in Acts, but it's interesting. One of the few statements that we have outside the gospel of Jesus' words is, he said, the Lord said, it is better to give than to receive, and we just need to cultivate that thought so that we are now as followers of Jesus Christ content with what God has given us because we are not going to covet what other people have. We're content with what he has given us, and we are going to cultivate giving, not getting. Greed brings more than what we bargained for. So cultivate a life of contentment. Let's go to a second thought. Grace brings more than what we hope for. Therefore, cultivate a life of gratitude. Let's continue on the passage, beginning in verse 25. When he, that is Gehazi, went in and stood before his master, Elisha, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to acquire clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants 
Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Why, why does God judge that so severely? I mean, like I said, no one got hurt. No one, no one got hurt. Why does God judge that so severely? Let me just point out, I think Gehazi's actions have compromised a key thing in our faith, a message of grace. God blesses us, and his blessings are not for sale. Once Gehazi goes and he wants to sell the healing, Naaman didn't receive the healing from leprosy because he could afford it. He received it by grace through faith. That message can never be compromised. That's one of the things we've got to get, take very seriously. We're memorizing Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. God values that grace. We treasure it. Gehazi tried to cash in on it. On God's grace. The point is it's free. It's given. And God takes it very seriously. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning verse 17. Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So, Think about how we live. Well, we're foreigners here. It's just a temporary dwelling. And we live in reverent fear. In other words, that awesome fear of God. And when we say fear, remember, we're talking about that love of God, that obedience of God, that trust in God. But that's how we live out our lives. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's free, but there was a price that was paid. To try to sell grace is to blemish the blood of Christ. Gehazi should know better. He saw God at work through Elisha. He saw the power of God. He saw what God could do. I want you to know this. Christians should know better, too. We, sh we should know better. I should know better. On this planet, sometimes we're, we're like that child. We, we stick our hand in the cloisonne vase, and we, we see uh, in this vase something that's, that's not worth much, but we don't know any better. And we grab a hold of it. And then Jesus, our loving brother, comes along. And he says, you know, let go of the penny. Let go of the penny and hold on to something greater. One of the amazing passages in Scripture that I find is in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's surprising to see how the writer of Hebrews phrases this. But I want you to read uh, from Hebrews chapter 11 about Moses, because Moses, remember, he was one of those princes of Egypt. He was the, uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So he's there, and the treasures are, of Egypt are at his disposal. 
Hebrews 11, verse 24. Now, notice how the writer of Hebrews puts this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, I can hang on to these things, these pennies, but the truth is, I'd rather be identified with God's people. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Do you hear that? He understood there was a promised Messiah coming. He didn't know the name Jesus, but he knew that that promise was real. He believed in that promise. And for the sake of Christ, he was willing to disregard the disgrace. Because there's a greater value than the treasures of Egypt with Christ himself. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Isn't that amazing about Moses? I mean, did you realize that? That here's a guy, he has the world, he has the treasures of Egypt, the treasures of Egypt at his disposal, but he's saying, no, I'd rather be with the Lord's people, those slaves, the Hebrew slaves, than be identified with them. And I will regard Christ, Christ, that's who I want to hold on to. And he doesn't even know the full story of Jesus, the love of God in sending Jesus into the world, who was born of the Virgin Mary, was suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, and raised again the third day. He doesn't know the full story, but he knows the promises, and he clings to that. That's Christ. He clings to Christ, and he believes there's a reward even greater. Here's the thing for us as followers of Jesus Christ. In the Western church in the 21st century, do we value the riches of Christ? Do we cling to those riches as greater than anything we can have here? Because everybody knows this. How much land does a man need? Just enough to be buried in. One day that's our destiny, but in Christ Jesus, our destiny is to be with him forever. So we cling to that greater treasure. Pray with me. Father, we thank you again. For Jesus Christ, our Lord, the riches of Christ are ours. The joy that we have in knowing Jesus and worshiping Jesus and giving for the glory of Jesus is, is there. It's, it's with us today, this week. Father, I pray that we would not be like this child who doesn't know any better who doesn't understand true value, true treasure. Lord Jesus, our treasure is you. Father, we want to take you seriously, even as we think about the material things of our world. And those things that you have blessed us with, we give you thanks, and we want to be good stewards. And those things that you've blessed other people with, praise God, bless them. But help us never to somehow think they belong to us because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus Christ owns it all. And one day, 
we will be with him forever. For that, that is our reward. In Christ's name.